Es spricht der Führer. Als unsere Partei gerade sieben an Hofer sprach sie schon zwei Grundsätze aus. Erstens, sie wollte eine wahrhaftige Weltanschauungspartei sein. Zweitens, sie wollte der kompromisslos die einzige Macht und alleinige Macht in Deutschland. Welcome to the Third Reich History Podcast. My name is Ryan Stackhouse, and we will presently be joined by Chris Osmar. This week, we'll be looking at the Hitler myth, how the image of Hitler presented in propaganda to the German people and Hitler's own charisma gained support for the National Socialist regime. Before we get stuck into this latest episode of The Roots of Nazism, though, we have a review of Christopher Dillon's new book about Dachau and a special announcement. Drumroll, if you please. The Close Encounters in War blog is launching a Close Encounters in War journal with their first issue dealing with close encounters in irregular and asymmetrical warfare. So you're going to get really close with warfare. Uh, the, the Close Encounters blog deals with the human aspect of armed conflict. And one of the editors there, I, I actually know, Simona Tobia, also put together the edited collection on interrogation in war and conflict that actually gave me the opportunity for my debut publication. So Simona is great and has also agreed to appear on this podcast at a later date when she is not drowning under the end of semester rush. So look forward to that. And in the meantime, if you do any research about partisan warfare or identity in asymmetrical conflict, and anything that deals with how people experience that type of warfare. You should check out the show notes. The links are there, and it will take you to the website with the call for papers, and, you know, you could have your work published. I had to edit in that special announcement. This is hot off the press. And uh, with that, I'm going to throw it back over to Chris, who's going to take us into the news. So we're going to begin once again today with an examination of the recent news in German history. So I think Ryan's got something for us. Yeah, the, today I've got uh, uh, Christopher Dillon's Dachau and the SS, A Schooling in Violence. And uh, considering our, our recent interest on the podcast in particularly concepts about radicalization and the application of the concept of a people's community in, in Nazi policy and how important this kind of separate culture of camaraderie was to the SS in perpetrating their crimes against humanity. I, I thought that it was particularly applicable. It, it specifically looks at the, the experience of Dachau and the, the introduction of a very specific set of norms and values and uh, way of relating to each other within the concentration camp at Dachau. For those of you who don't know, uh, Dachau was the first concentration camp in Germany. It was set up by Himmler while he was commandant of the Bavarian political police in Munich. There has been more research recently that is shifting the focus from organization and structure of the concentration camps and into 
more research on the everyday duties and practices and behaviors of the actual camp guards. So there's a long history of really productive research on uh, like so-called perpetrator research that has to do with the Holocaust. Uh, this is kind of part of more perpetrator research, but being applied to within the camp system and specifically within the concentration camp system rather than the death camp system. And, and it's interesting material because a lot of it is dealing with mentalities and it's looking at the pre-war period in Dachau specifically. So you're looking at political prisoners and uh, after 1936-37, a lot of uh, criminal prisoners, so-called habitual criminals who were supposedly lost to this people's community and so therefore put into the concentration camp as just you know, a place where we can dump irredeemable, dangerous people that are lost to our community. Anyway, uh, Dylan gets into showing the different functions of the different ranks from the commandant right down to the actual camp guards in the function of this system. And so it, it kind of caught my eye in that respect. His major points, though, were that the the revolutionary struggle narrative that the SS told itself, that all of the disorder of the Weimar era and the National Socialist response to this disorder and the the SS part SS's part within that as sort of the the elite of the National Socialists was important to their self conception of of how they saw what they were doing at Dachau and how they were managing the camps, and that that narrative was very important in justifying violence towards the detainees because it was part of this narrative of the revolutionary struggle. The other thing that I thought was really interesting, that it, it got into how Theodore Eicke, who was, I don't know what the right word would be, but called, Berufen, appointed, uh, Theodore Eicke, who was appointed as the commandant of Dachau, really tried to apply the Nazi ideology of the people's community or the racial community to how he structured relationships within the camp. And uh, that he, he, in his administration of the camp, was instrumental in feeding these concepts of, that were important to the SS about pride and honor and community that kind of created this self-reinforcing bubble of, of, of norms that were in many ways distinct from the rest of society. So Eike had a dictum, tolerance means weakness, which I thought was very interesting and I had never heard before. And Dylan looks at how this affected SS concepts of masculinity, which is quite interesting because oftentimes in gender research, you're looking at the way that uh, sort of uh, you're, you're looking at concepts of femininity and its relationship with power structures or with social structures, but masculinity, well, it's been investigated in, in relationship to, say, the war and, and sort of activity of soldiers. It hasn't been applied so far as I know within the confines of concentration camps and specifically looking at the perpetrators within the concentration camps. So that was something that stood out that quite uh, quite a productive application. What was interesting about it, though, was that uh, it created the attempt to create this this concept of what a proper SS man was, and and specifically that the SS man was a man, was that you had to be hard on yourself 
And according to Ica's prescription, also, you had to eliminate all empathy toward the actual prisoners within the camp. So that was how the SS regulated its attitudes toward the prisoners. But among itself, in the application of this concept of the people's community, they were to reinforce each other in this kind of, or they were to support each other within this environment of comradeship. Uh, specifically, or and quite interestingly, Ica was referred to as Papa Ica and developed these rather paternalistic relationships with the guards where he served as a sort of father figure, modeling and, you know, a masculine role figure. Uh, or role model, modeling a, providing a masculine role, providing a masculine role model for the guards. So, so it it was interesting because in the application of this idea of the people's community, and and this is part of the much larger discussion that's happening right now about how the ideology of the people's community was whether it's either a social reality or was it just a promise or did it influence national socialist policy? But in this case. Uh, that it really seemed integral to the the creation of an SS self-conception and the the stories that they told themselves about what they were doing. Anyway, looked like quite interesting book. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like Dylan saying that the camps were a site where Volksgemeinschaft could, could manifest, could become real. They could experiment with it and. Uh, put it into practice well the idea of the it, it certainly would seem to fit easily into that narrative of sort of the the national socialist leadership model is creating these kind of different lab- laboratories for its ideology mm-hmm. right like um and i i also thought that it, it lines up quite neatly as well and i don't know that whether or not he makes this point with this larger idea that the belonging to the people's community is very obviously part of inclusion and and, and exclusion, who is a member and who is not. And I I think that it really neatly illustrates the SS attitude toward what, how one is supposed to treat members of that community and how one is supposed to treat outsiders in this idea that you must eliminate empathy and that tolerance is weakness, right? For people who are excluded from the people's community but that there's supposed to be this sense of belonging and mutual support and and the camaraderie that is essential to your so-called racial comrades who are members, Volksgenossen, who are members of that, that people's community, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and as I understand it, uh, the camps early on in the pre-war period did have an attitude that what they were doing was rehabilitating people through brutal means but for for example concentration camp prisoners that were put to work uh, and this was Ike's idea that work wasn't supposed to be productive it was supposed to be something that was was simply unpleasant that strained them um, in order to you know help them to overcome uh, whatever deficiency it was that put there in the first place uh, so you could also look at the early camps as a place where outsiders are kind of where an attempt is made to retrain them and to bring them back into the fold in this pretty brutal way. Yeah, the the idea of the reformative, the very Victorian or Wilhelminian idea about the reformatory power of hard work, right? Like, uh, yeah, that that 
certainly held true up till around 1935-1936. The narrative surrounding the camps changes at that point publicly. They they go from being a, a place of reform to a place of indefinite detention for people who are somehow degenerate or permanently lost to the people's community. So I'm not sure how that would influence camp life. Um, I'm not an expert on the concentration camps by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, yeah, it 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 certainly it may show uh, a broader development in self conceptions of the SS and conceptions of how one treats insiders and outsiders. I, I would think that it would be hard to. I don't know. I suppose reform can exist with a lack of tolerance, right? Setting standards and all that. But um, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. Uh, and I think it's also uh, worth pointing out that uh, Dachau was very much the model camp. And Ike's entire attitude there was a model for all of the rest of the camps uh, throughout Germany that the the guards that are being trained there are sent to other places as well. And then they're going to carry this culture that ICA is establishing early on in Dachau uh, throughout the rest of the country. Yeah, well, it's not for nothing that, I mean, the it's called the Dachau model, right? And, that's, yeah. and that it is the sale of the so-called Dachau model by which Heinrich Himmler manages to extend his influence over the, over the political police of all of, of all of the German states, right? Like, this is, uh, it's, it is, it is definitely, uh, particularly Dachau is a, a testing grounds for a lot of their ideas. Well, this sounds like a, a great contribution to understanding exactly what, was, what it was that they were testing out there. Yeah, I, I'm definitely, I'm particularly interested in SS mentalities and uh, it's definitely something that I would like to look further into, but. Well, that will just about do it for our discussion of Villains Dachau and the SS. So let's move along to our main event for today. So there's a, a prison in Vroslav that uh, was a Gestapo prison during the war. Uh, it's still a prison today. Uh, it was a prison during the Polish communist state. And they've got some memorials outside for the many different victims that have gone through this place. And one of the plaques on the walls of this prison uh, refers to the crimes of the Hitlerite Nazis that were set up in the prison uh, during the Third Reich. And when I, I heard this phrase, Hitlerite Nazis, I kind of laughed because it seems redundant that you don't, you don't need to talk about Hitlerite if you're talking about Nazis. Hitler is so clearly the fundamental component of Nazism. And that makes a lot of sense. I think it's almost intuitive to us. When we were getting ready to talk about this this thing we call the Hitler myth, I had a lot of trouble because it's it's just second nature to think about the role of Hitler in the way that the German people looked at this this project that the Nazis were trying to put together uh, in the Third Reich. Yeah, it, it is really hard to to separate Hitler from Nazism because he he served his or his image served as really the embodiment of everything that the movement stood for. So when we're talking about Nazism, 
the role and the the image of the leader or the image of Hitler as the Führer of of the Nazi movement is is really important for understanding what Nazism meant to average German. And for a lot of Germans, Hitler was Nazism. That he represented all the, the parts of the movement that they liked. And if they didn't like something that was going on in their country, they could pin it on somebody else. That it wouldn't be Hitler that was responsible for it. They could, they could identify with Hitler or with a image of Hitler that was particularly appealing for them. In 1941, Joseph Goebbels said that creating a Fuhrer myth was the greatest achievement of his propaganda. And Ian Kershaw has, has run with this idea, repackaged it as the Hitler myth, and used this to try and explain why Hitler was so popular, why people were able to look at Hitler and see someone that they admired and that they wanted to get behind. Yeah, and so the Hitler myth is an idea that is, as, as Chris said, basically second nature for people who study Nazism, even the people who are, are critical of it or believe that other ideas have more explanatory power are intimately familiar with the concept of the Hitler myth as explaining popular support for the Nazis in some way or another. So it, of course, pays to understand what that is because really it gives you some insight into how people could vote for and after the voting was done, continue to support a regime, a dictatorial regime like the Nazis. So I guess we should start with a definition of what we mean when we say the Hitler myth. Right. So the Hitler myth was the whole collection of characteristics that people saw embodied in Hitler. It was the source of his authority. It was why people wanted to get behind them. That Hitler was a demagogue. He, he'd come from the people. He embodied their goals. But he was also a protector. That he was going to defend Germany and help it to regain its rightful place in the world. So Kershaw calls it a consciously devised propaganda image of Hitler that was used to manufacture consensus. So as Chris says, Hitler represented all these things, but it was more than just these the, all, taken together. All of these things that Hitler represented created a heroic image that was projected to the public. And in the popular conception of Hitler, this image of him as the leader imparted extraordinary or superhuman, even supernatural characteristics and motives that allowed him to integrate average Germans into a broader base of support for the regime and its policies. Yeah, and it undergirded his own authority. He was able to draw his authority from this popular image of him. Yeah, so I suppose it pays to get into the background here of where where the concept of the Hitler myth comes from, because it's it's sort of in the analysis of it, it's grounded in a lot of sociology. And the sociology of Max Weber in particular. Right. So Max Weber's theory of legitimate rule is what Kershaw used in his analysis of Hitler's leadership that led him to this description of Hitler's popular image as, as the Hitler myth, right? Uh, 
in Max Weber's thinking, there are three types, three ideal types of legitimate rule, or that is to say three ways that governments can present themselves to the public as legitimate, right? Like all, all states somehow rest on some type of understanding that you in government are allowed to make and enforce rules, right? The legitimate the legitimate monopoly on state violence, right? That you can make the rules and enforce them and everybody agrees to live by those rules. Yeah. So I suppose we ought to go through what each of these different types of legitimate authority that Max Weber suggested were. So the one that I think that would be most understandable, most familiar to us here in the modern world is legal authority. straightforward appeal to rational organization to a a bureaucratic state which has has the authority to uh, issue laws and control the behavior of people within the state right this idea that there is a there is a legal bureaucratic process and the process is what makes the government legitimate that we all agree to abide by these rules the other one is traditional and that's more when you're looking at, say, kings or divine right monarchies, this idea that there are, it has always been this way, or this is the way that our society is organized. And that is what makes this particular type of rule legitimate, that it somehow emerges from a longer tradition of leadership and rule in that country, or it's grounded in traditions of that country that make it legitimate to that people. Right. But then there's this third way that is neither grounded in the distant past nor based on a set of laws that even the ruler has to hold to, and that's charismatic authority. And this is the kind of legitimate authority suggested by Max Weber that Kershaw is really latching on to, saying that this is the kind of authority that Hitler wielded, was charismatic authority. But when when you hear the the word uh, charismatic, you might think that it refers to the inborn traits of a person, that a person is charismatic. But that's not quite what Max Weber's saying. Uh, It's more about a relationship between people and and, an individual onto whom they dump all of their desires. They, They see this person, this individual, as as different, distinct, unique, and having qualities that make them the right leader. So yeah, the idea is that the authority to rule comes from the person themselves or what the person represents to their follower. As Weber looked at it, it was an extraordinary or an unstable form of rule that tended to be a response to crisis conditions and was directed toward overcoming a specific emergency. And so within those crisis conditions, the leader could call upon a sort of divine mission or their calling as the reason that they could compel or command that others would follow them. They were Their purpose in overcoming that crisis is what gave, their, that, what gave them their right to command, what gave them their legitimacy. So they would seize the task that they were destined for, and then they would demand that others obey or follow them by virtue of their mission. They weren't just demanding, though. They also had to deliver. 
a charismatic leader has to continually uh, reinforce their authority by achieving the goals that that they've laid out. That so long as they're they're delivering this perception of the leader as infallible, right? a person of destiny remains. Uh, but charismatic authority is fragile because if this belief in the leader fades because they're not able to give the people what they need, or if the leader themselves disappears, then charismatic authority vanishes along with it. Yeah. You, what have you done for me lately, basically, exactly. but as a, a form of government, right? So Weber saw charismatic authority essentially as something that was part of primitive societies, quote unquote, as he saw them. So something, uh, societies that were ruled by warlords or chieftains and prophets were societies that relied on charismatic authority and that modern societies were supposed to, for because of the complexity of their systems, no longer rely on this form of government. But the core idea of the Hitler myth and in the way that Kershaw uses this idea of charismatic authority is that modern telecommunications, like the radio, right, and, and planes that allowed Hitler to travel across Germany and appear at mass rallies and things like this, meant that his charisma could be projected beyond a small group of, of people and, and sort of, in a way, manufacture the individual relationship that charisma rests on with an entire society. Yeah, so propaganda, essentially, just as as Goebbels said in, in 1941, that he had been able to consciously push this image of Hitler through uh, all of the, the uh, devices that the modern world provided through mass media, through rapid transportation, by moving, moving the person and the message to where it was needed. Yeah, and, and a very specific type of propaganda that was oriented around a cult of personality around Hitler specifically as the great heroic figure that had managed to deliver all of the successes that the propaganda was trumpeting. So it's really a consciously devised propaganda image of Hitler that, again, is used to manufacture that consensus. And that it's because of Hitler's supposedly superhuman or supernatural characteristics and motives that he is able to deliver these things. And because he can do this and because he is shown to be somehow superhuman, he serves as a point of consensus that integrates average Germans into the, the aims and policies of the Nazi movement. All right. Well, I think that now might be a good time to talk about how exactly this, this Hitler myth worked and what the components of it were, the content of the myth. Yes. The, the seven pillars of the Hitler myth. Yeah. All right. So who was Hitler to the German people? Hitler was, was the German people to the German people. He was he was Germany. He represented uh, the the national interest, and this allowed him to, you know, distance himself from what had come before the war, the First World War, Weimar, and uh, embody the heroic future for Germany. 
yeah, he was like a one-man symbol of unity for the German people and, and specifically a specific type of unity, right? Like that Nazi vision of people's community, that Nazi vision of Volksgemeinschaft, Hitler was supposed to be the, the selfless exponent of a national interest, a self-sacrificing Superman of sorts who was doing everything in his power to advance the interests of Germany as a nation, but the German people as people. Yeah, and and towards this end, uh, the way that he's offered to the German people is as someone who is warm, but who can be ruthless, uh, someone who's self-sacrificing and generous, but lonely and austere, that uh, he is he has given up a personal life to be the champion of the German people. I think champion is really the operative word here, right? Like it, it really revolves around these ideas of, of, you know, of the traditional hero, right? Like there's all sorts of these quotes from Nazis at the Nuremberg trial where they, they basically say like, we followed Hitler because he reminded us of a hero from like an ancient saga or something like that. Uh, the This idea of the, the self-sacrifice that comes along with it, though, is, is very important, right? There's Hitler. Hitler is publicly celibate, right? He he does not have a wife. His relationship with Eva Braun is kept strictly secret, and instead, this idea is portrayed as the sacrifice of personal happiness for the welfare of the nation. Yeah, and that's you know one of the many restrained personal characteristics he has, you know. Uh... He's a teetotaler. He's a vegetarian. Oh, all of these these aspects of his life where he chooses to go without uh, because what he's concerned about is the German nation and advancing it. And it's it's funny, too, because all of this is very calculated. The, the idea that he was celibate was specifically so as not to alienate women voters because right. it was believed that if he was, you know, if if the Fuhrer is an eligible bachelor, mm-hmm. but unattainable, then it creates this sort of, you know, desire, um, romantic complex. Yeah, the desire yeah. that translates into political support or such was the thinking. And uh, yeah, it was considered vital for the electoral the electoral victory of the Nazis. Hitler as the, the representation of uh, the German future, the German people allowed him to distance himself from the German past, but also allowed him to distance himself from the party itself um, in instances where it had done something unpopular or as a contrast to the corruption or radicalism of some party members. The the fact that he's seen as incorruptible, the fact that Hitler is a teetotal, you know, a vegetarian who never drinks beer in Germany, the land of pork and beer, it it shows him, like Chris said, as this austere figure, right? And contrasted against this is the image of the party, where many of the functionaries, especially the, the Gao leaders, the regional party bosses, after the Nazis come to power, start to inflate, let's say, in their official portraits. There's a lot of, uh, and, and I mean that physically, right? These guys get, a lot of these guys get remarkably fat. Yeah, and and that's that's certainly uh, not a sign of uh, of restraint and mild appetite. Well, and 
what's more than that is when the corruption scandals begin to come along, as they invariably do with any government in power, this serves as a very public image of the Nazi party. Like, look, you're talking about these guys who came to power saying that they were going to work for everybody, but instead they got into power and are quite literally serving themselves uh, instead of your interests. So his image as having purity of purpose and restraint was at times very much at contrast with his own party. This meant that the the popularity of Hitler was durable, even in the face of the corruption and indiscretions of the party. So while Hitler really represented the German people as a whole and the German nation, uh, he also represented German law, that uh, he was perceived to be a strong enforcer of law and order, that he could bring popular justice to Germany when legal justice failed, and that that he was going to uh, ensure that uh, Germany would be a stable and just place uh, in the wake of the Weimar system, which was not seen to be either stable or just. Well, like Chris says, this idea of the Weimar Republic as a place where justice was not upheld. There were a lot of really high profile cases toward the end or toward the beginning of the 1930s and toward the end of the 1920s where members of parliament in in the various Landtags of the of the different German states were actually using their immunity as public figures to conduct espionage on behalf of the Soviet Union. Now this was a couple very limited, high-profile cases. But as you can imagine, once a story like that hits the news, that's all that people are going to talk about. So the image that often was propagated in the the right-wing press of the Weimar period was that the same laws and guaranteed rights of the Weimar Republic that are what we enjoy about democratic societies with constitutions were exactly what was protecting these enemies of the people from facing, you know, proper justice, right? The the fact that the Soviet delegation were under the protections of international diplomacy and, you know, their, their offices were inviolate uh, under international law or under international agreements the Weimar Republic subscribed to meant that the problem were the laws as they were presently understood. And Hitler was supposed to, you know, get rid of all that nonsense and just deal with common sense, right? Like he was he was going to represent justice as a, a true justice rather than all of this lawyeristic gobbledygook. Although, you know, it's worth pointing out that uh, Hitler himself was a, a benefit Fiduciary of uh, questionable judicial decisions during the Weimar Republic, uh, being convicted of high treason and uh, only serving a few months in prison. Well, of course, he didn't have a problem with it himself. Uh, no, he but, did not. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, the- it, it, it goes to show that, that the uh, Weimar legal system had its flaws. Well, I don't know that it necessarily shows to, goes to show that it had its flaws, but the the idea that restorative justice and mitigating factors should be considered in sentencing was great for the the Nazis loved it when it worked in their favor, but that 
they really didn't like it when it worked against them, right? Like <laughs> the the judge's opinion against Hitler ruling against Hitler was because he was considered to have acted with in in the interests of the nation. Mm-hmm. So it was considered a mitigating factor in his sentencing. So I don't know. It's that's a, that's a tough one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, how about Hitler as uh, the enforcer of uh, law and order? What what is it that he did that earned this image for him? Because it, as a charismatic leader, you know he has he has to show action. Yeah. Well. I mean, one of the things that you often see in documentaries where they interview contemporaries of, of the time was that uh, they say, oh, you, it was safe. You could walk around on the streets and you couldn't do it before and after. But life under Hitler was safe. The statistics, the crime statistics show that violent crime and person on person violence didn't actually change all that much under the Nazis so far as I understand. But what did happen was there was a very strong law and order message in propaganda and a a much greater usage of executions. So there were sort of there was an effort to communicate to the public that lawbreakers were being dealt with as they deserved in a way. And there was also an element of being an upholder of public morality in Hitler's public image that was closely tied to the persecution of of certain minorities like homosexuals. Part of the frustration with the Weimar Republic was also that it was seen as a period that encouraged a moral decay. And so Hitler, as as the representative of popular justice, could, uh, quote unquote, voice the healthy sentiment of the people which in this in in many cases meant you know cracking down on alcoholics and homosexuals other socially marginalized groups that were not seen as having a place in Nazi Germany anymore of course but the first crackdown was against the left mm-hmm. for the uh, anti-socials uh, become victims it is the communists and the socialists uh, who fall to this new popular justice and I mean, that's really a reaction, again, to the disorder of the Weimar period. You're looking, especially at the late Weimar period, you got like the street fights going on, right? Yeah. Uh, not that the Nazis were not entirely complicit in that as well. Yeah. yeah. No, again, right? The Nazis are part of creating the problem that they are, that they purport to be solving, right? It's uh-huh. just that we're the ones who are going to solve it. And that means getting rid of those guys rather than us. Yeah, but uh, Hitler did show that he was willing to get rid of some of the us as well uh, in 1934 with the Rome Putsch, uh, which was also seen as a move towards establishing law and order. Yeah, Rome was an interesting character, eh? Yeah, so Rome was uh, the leader of the SA, so he was deeply involved in uh, a lot of this street fighting that was going on during the Weimar Republic. Uh, He was also a homosexual, which ruffled the feathers of many in the movement uh, and in the German public uh, at large. And he wanted to continue the revolution, wanted to become the, have the SA become the, the core of a new German military and to continue the radicalization of the Nazi revolution. But all this was was put to put to an end uh, during the the night of the long knives. 
1934, essentially, there was a, a broader backlash to this idea of continuing revolution from uh, the middle classes, but particularly from the army in Hindenburg, who Rome was talking about replacing with a kind of people's army on Rome being very much on the left wing of the Nazi party and very much about the social revolution and social leveling aspects. And essentially Hindenburg issued an ultimatum saying, look, if you don't deal with this, I, as the president, the Reich's president, will just appoint a different, different chancellor. So Hitler was really backed into a corner and said, fine, okay, to maintain power, I will go and execute the man who was in charge of basically providing us with the paramilitary wing of the party all through the 1920s and bringing, you know, providing security for our meetings and all these things, you know, a major, major player in the Nazi party. And uh, to, to, hold, to maintain my grasp on power. But in the public presentation of this, it was portrayed as, look, we've finally, we've dealt with all the radical elements. We've dealt with these people who wanted to upend the system of, of rules and laws that we have. And we've removed an enemy of the people who was threatening the stability and security of Germany. Uh, so almost paradoxically, this spate of murders was presented and accepted as restoring law and order. Yeah, you, you got, I guess this would be like the definition of you got to break a few eggs for an omelet, but... Uh -huh. It, it is it is an ironic reception. It it ties into another one of Hitler's pillars of support in in the way that he was portrayed as a bulwark against perceived conspiracies of powerful ideological enemies who were bent on subverting Germany and destroying the German people. Yeah, these these enemies of the people, and importantly, he was seen to be committed to lawful and rational suppression of these enemies. So early on, he, he distances, distances himself from over-the-top anti-Semitism or Einzelaktion and individual actions uh, against these perceived enemies of the people. And he also distances himself from Ernst Röhm and the SA and the sort of street-fighting antics, the, the sort of bully-boy tactics that they're known for after he comes to power. Yeah, but that doesn't make him less of a bulwark, that he is still trying to set up a lawful rational system to exclude and suppress these enemies. As opposed to using revolutionary violence, he's going to do it the proper, ordentlich German way, right? Which speaks to the middle classes. So particularly the fact that he's his first target, as Chris says, is the communist, which flatters the, or well, does not flatter, but I suppose assuages the pronounced anti-Marxist fears of the middle classes having had, you know, the Russian revolution not on their doorsteps, more or less, less than 20 years earlier. Yeah. This, this also speaks to uh, another component of his image, uh, that he is seen as more moderate than much of the rest of the party, particularly when it came to traditions and established institutions. That's that's part of why the Night of the Long Knives did have uh, some some purchase with the German people, uh, that he was moving against the radical wing 
of the party. Uh, but it wasn't just just that event in which Hitler demonstrated himself as a moderating influence. Uh, he tended to distance himself from decisions by the party and just come in later on and uh, confirm those decisions when they were received well. And if the party did something that the people didn't like, there was uh, an attitude that uh, if only the Fuhrer knew about this problem, then then he would make it right, that he wasn't on the extremes. Yeah, it it's something that helped him out at, at every sort of major juncture of his career and, again, prevented any any major confrontation between the party and the German people from escalating into something that undermined his power as the leader. He could always essentially just sidestep and say like, oh, well, it wasn't me, it was the local party boss or it was this little functionary. And I'm so glad that you brought this to my attention because now we can, we'll make sure that these traditions and these traditions and institutions are protected because this is just another radical who's gotten out of hand, right? But if, if, if it was a success, then he was more than happy to take credit for the success of that radicalism. Yeah. It's the modus operandi of a uninvolved manager who's trying to get a promotion. <laughs> I mean, uh, claim all successes and blame all failures on others. That's right. Well, it's it's interesting though. It, it it's it's important to the the power structure of the regime because it, it it saves Hitler's popularity in some real what could have been for the party life or death showdowns with the German public. One of the more extreme ones that that crops up is the so-called church struggle or the crucifix struggle that occurs over the middle of the 1930s. Um, it kind of unfolds in a different, few different phases, but one, one is a, a set of trials that are taken against monasteries and uh, sort of order houses that are, are basically nailing them for violating uh, exchange laws by moving currency across borders. Like if you're talking about Catholic orders, they're multinational institutions, right? So uh, it becomes popular in the Rhineland to begin suing them for violating currency exchange laws, moving currency outside of borders. Then there's a whole second set of uh, trials against the members of Catholic orders for so-called morality, the, the so-called morality trials for cases of sexual abuse. And then one of the culminations of this church struggle is the so-called crucifix struggle that plays out in the classrooms of Catholic schools. Yeah, so the roots of this struggle were that religious symbols or crucifixes in particular were supposed to be taken down in these schools and replaced by pictures of the Führer. But people were not terribly enthusiastic about this. And there were demonstrations to have the crucifixes replaced. Well, you can imagine the kind of backlash, right? Like you're taking down Jesus Christ and replacing yeah, it with a with picture Hitler. of Hitler uh -huh. in, in religious schools, right? So, or, well, not religious schools, but in part of the, the, the separate Catholic school system. So uh, there, there is quite a, an uproar about what, who, who exactly does Herr Hitler think he is here, right? Yeah, but once this backlash became apparent, Hitler stepped in and undid the policy. 
so to the, the, the German people who had been so offended by the removal of crucifixes, uh, this seemed to be an example of lower-level functionaries overstepping their bounds, and then Hitler stepping in uh, as the, the moderating force and putting it right. Did we get the de- details of this right? There were demonstrations, right? There were demonstrations. Yeah. yeah okay. There were demonstrations in one of the uh, in Oldenburg. Uh, Oldenburg. Um, yeah. Okay. So, so in in the Rhineland, where there was a, a, another another round of this crucifix struggle played out, what happened instead was that th- they reached a a compromise where Hitler's picture would be placed at the front of the classroom, but the crucifix would be placed over the doorway because that fit another long-standing German tradition of blessing all those who entered and exited the room. So there, in this way, the regime could blame any attempts, anything that was unpopular as overstepping, as activists overstepping their bounds, but work and build upon German traditions wherever possible to slowly subvert them and move them out of the public sphere and replace them with with essentially Nazi traditions or invented traditions that reinforced Nazism. This moderate image was important in Hitler's rise to power and his his ability to build a broad base of consensus because, I mean, the idea that he was a, sin- a personally sincere moderate who was just as shocked and offended as any anybody else by the liberties, let's say, taken by his subordinates meant that people could always come back and bring their grievances to Hitler without really rejecting the party that he stood for. So uh, Hitler as a moderate really helps to to stabilize the, the Nazi state early on uh, after he has managed to, to come to power because it, it allows this mythical image of Hitler to be durable uh, and to endure some small failures and will give him the chance to demonstrate uh, his worth through successes both domestically and uh, in the foreign arena uh, in the near future. One of those successes is the economy. Another another part of the Hitler myth is this idea of Hitler as the architect of the German economic miracle of the 1930s. So Hitler was, again, as we said, quite happy to take the credit for any successes. And in this case, he took the credit for eliminating mass unemployment and returning jobs and revitalizing the economy and improving living standards. And so really, he managed to construct an image of himself in public and Goebbels and others who were happy to give him the credit for uh, this idea that he had provided a basis for lasting prosperity in Germany. Yeah, that he had personally overcome this one of the one of the largest problems in Weimar, the unprecedented unemployment. This, this is one of the things that, that propelled the Nazis uh, up in the polls through 1932, is that people were not living well. And when, during the, the Third Reich, people began to get jobs and live better, Hitler was seen as being personally responsible for that change. I mean, the, the reality of the situation was quite different. 
Um, and, and of course, a lot more people are involved than just Hitler having descended from on high and then through divine genius having sorted out the economy single-handedly, right? But I mean, this was the idea that the Hitler myth was portraying. Um, in On the ground, as it were, the way that the, the economy managed to soak up all those employees again and, and to deal with it was through overheating the economy with massive deficit spending, essentially spending money that they didn't have on these large public works projects like the Autobahn to stimulate the economy and reduce unemployment. There was also a massive outlay on rearmament that was part of, again, a redressing the Versailles Treaty and you know restoring Germany to a position of strength. A lot of other things the Nazis and Hitler came to power promising, but this required a massive outlay of money that again, Germany simply did not have at that time coming as it did on, on the heels of the Great Depression. The credit, if it's going to go to one person, should probably go more to Hallmar Schacht at the Reichsbank than to Hitler himself. He introduced this idea of basically government IOUs that could be traded as a security. So the, these would be issued to all of the different factories that were involved in rearmament. And essentially, it allowed businesses to trade these government bonds between each other without all of the debt that it represented appearing on the government budget. So it essentially allowed Germany to operate with this iceberg of debt underneath the surface that was all this imaginary money being traded between companies that were involved in the rearmament. And it, it involved this juggling act of, of speculative investment um, in projects like Hydroelectric dams is a really big one in the Rhineland. There's three or four of them, and they're intended to be this long-term investment project to generate foreign exchange. Uh, you know, we're going to sell the electricity to the Netherlands or something like that, or that's what we're going to say right now to get the money for the project. And th the money for the projects is juggled between multiple levels. You know, it, one month it will be run on the Reich level. The next month, it will be shifted off to the district level, like all the way down into local government. The next month, it will be bumped up and somebody will try and find a way to run it off of the state purse. And uh, it, it's it's this, like I said, it's a juggling act that is a house of cards perpetually one step away from absolute collapse. And by running it this way and just trying to find somebody to keep the lights on month to month, the, the idea is that we can hopefully just stimulate the economy to the point where we can outgrow the problem, right? We can outgrow ourselves to a stable economy by running on a deficit. But it is massive by 1939, like I, I, 36 billion Reichsmark or something like that. But uh, I think I'd have to check that figure again. Anyway, um, so the image that this is a sound solid economy is really a facade that is papering over a lot of the cracks it, it, and, and built on an overheated economic bubble that is set to burst right before the war begins. And only propped up through plunder at that point. Well, as Gutzali tells us. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but of course, you know, there, there were some, some years still to come uh, before the, the war would start. Uh, and in the interim period, Hitler was able to perfect another part of his image, and, and that was Hitler as statesman, not, not just the master of the economy, 
not just the the moderate champion of the law and order German nation, uh, but also somebody who could regain Germany's rightful position in the world. But somebody that could do this without a, another war. And as he racked up these diplomatic coups, like rearmament, uh, remilitarizing the Rhineland and the Anschluss, the acquisition of the Sudetenland, every one of these steps uh, just seemed to prove over and over again that Hitler could bring Germany to its, its place in the world without having to throw the German people back into another terrible. It's really hard, I think, to, to overstate how hated the Versailles Treaty that concluded the First World War was in Germany. Like, it, it's really hard to comprehend what uh, humiliation and what uh, really what an existential threat to the, the continued existence of Germany as a country it was understood to be by the people who, who lived through defeat of the end of the First World War and then lived through the, the sort of subsequent disorder of the Weimar years. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about a, a population that the civilians have endured starvation, the veterans have endured unspeakable horrors, uh, and then after the war, they're accepted or they're expected to just accept that it was all their fault, and the country is dismembered and saddled with debt. Part of it is broken off and, and occupied in the Rhineland by the French. Uh, there's a, a massive demilitarized zone that is intended to serve as a, a springboard for reinvasion should Germany ever appear to be a threat again. Yeah, it, it's it's very clear that the the Treaty of Versailles is is set up to prevent Germany from ever again being a a world power. It is set up to keep the German people down. And as you say, there, there is a clause in the Versailles Treaty, the war guilt clause, as it's known, that requires Germany to accept sole responsibility for the entire First World War as, as a legal basis for all subsequent decisions. So it's, um, yeah, it's, it's not a popular document. In fact, the people who sign it end up being known as the November criminals. So Yeah, but as this genius statesman, Hitler was able to, one by one, roll back these provisions of the Treaty of Versailles. Yeah, first he, he reoccupies the Rhine, remilitarizes the Rhineland, uh, marches an army back in, and there's no response. Well, for, uh, first he starts building the military that, that is not supposed to be there, according to, to the provisions of the treaty. And then he puts the military where it's not supposed to be, according yeah. to the provisions of the treaty. Yeah, he just, he starts as, as, I believe he himself says, tearing up the, the, the Versailles Treaty bit by bit, right? Um, mm. And then the Saarland, which is broken off under this uh, League of Nations mandate, is, I believe it's under League of Mandation, Nations mandate, regardless. Uh, the Saarland, which is separated from Germany in, in 1919, is brought back into the fold through a popular plebiscite. Over 90% people vote to return to Germany. Uh, there's sort of success after success. Yeah, until until there's not, because eventually uh, Hitler does take a, a step too far, and he's not able to be this this brilliant statesman uh, achieving p 
peaceful gains for Germany, and uh, the Germans find themselves in, in another war. But even that didn't didn't break the Hitler myth right away. In fact, it it contributed to it because Germany was phenomenally successful early on in the war, uh, able to take Paris in what six weeks. Uh, when they'd not been able to do so in the entirety of, of the First World War. It's because of the Second World War, it's become something of, of, of a joke to talk about the French army as sort of a synony- synonymous with surrender. But up until the Second World War, the French army was considered to be the premier fighting force of Europe. And then, and then the Nazis beat them in six weeks. Yeah. And of course, uh, being someone who takes the credit for for any successes you know hitler is seen as the reason for this that he is a brilliant military strategist and and it is his victory not only is it hitler's victory personally according to the public uh, public narrative that he the fuhrer's genius as, as a as a military ta- strategist has delivered this he's also seen as a military genius of the everyman right he he's he's a, a decorated front uh, veteran from the First World War. He has an iron clo- an iron cross, first class, second class. I forget whether it goes up or down, but he has he has the senior grade. He has the senior grade of the iron cross, which was not issued normally to non officers. So he's he's not just decorated; he's highly decorated for bravery, and uh, is is portrays himself in public as not only a military genius, but having had these experiences and having been decorated for his bravery, understanding the experiences of the soldier at the front, not willing to risk their lives in vain. Yeah, and and I think that that that's that that success is the key here. That it's it's the fact that yes, he had led Germany into another war, but this time Germany was going to be victorious or so it appeared. That this time maybe the war really could be short and glorious, mm-hmm. and completely redress all of the humiliation of the Versailles mm-hmm. Treaty. So, even after things take a turn for the worse, though he this idea of Hitler continues to hold significance. Yeah, although popular adherence to the the Hitler myth uh, does decline after there are reverses on the battlefield, particularly uh, Stalingrad. Uh, in the winter of 1942 to 1943. Nevertheless, even after that point, Hitler as an individual, people start to blame the generals, right? And Hitler as an individual continues to represent this this sort of epitome of Germany's unwavering will to win, the the belief in the Endsieg, the final victory. Yeah. And you know, after after Hitler survives the attempt on his life on the 20th of July 1944, uh, and the the coup that came along with it, attempted coup. This, for a time, just reinforces the the Hitler myth that that clearly he is a a man of destiny. That he is fated to lead lead Germany. He can be in in the room next to a bomb, and he's still going to walk out and lead the German nation uh, to victory through sheer will. Yeah, Hitler. Hitler as in league with providence. This is this the the idea that he has. He, a supernatural predestination to lead the German people to victory. So I guess if we, if we look at those seven parts, uh, you know, Hitler as personification of the nation, Hitler as popular justice, Hitler as bulwark against a conspiracy of enemies, Hitler 
as the moderate, Hitler as the economic genius, Hitler is the great statesman, Hitler is the military genius. It's a pretty impressive resume. But uh, that that's sort of what goes into the Hitler myth. The question becomes, who's susceptible to the Hitler myth and, and why or why not? Yeah, so, I mean, the, the middle class, right? That, that these are middle class values that he's propping up, you know, law and order, um, that it is largely the middle class that's benefiting from the improvements in in the economy yeah it's uh and and also the people who he's targeting and excluding uh and, and sort of what he represents in terms of foreign policy all all speak to long-standing frustrations and internal divisions inside of germany uh, we talked about the the what you call it the the church struggle and the the crucifix struggle within the larger church struggle earlier well, the term church struggle, which is used to discuss th this confrontation with the Catholic Church in the 1930s, actually goes back to Bismarck and the 1870s, <laughs> where, you know, like Germany only first became a country and achieved national unity in 1871. And it placed this exaggerated emphasis on unity that entire time, but it was mirrored by this internal rejection or this rejection of internal enemies of the Reich, so-called, from these Catholic, socialist, and, and ethnic minority backgrounds. And Hitler, in, in many ways, is a continuation, um, a, a re repackaging of all of these old middle-class concerns of what, what it is to be a true German, um, presented again through this message of national unity and pursuing this larger middle-class vision of community in Volksgemeinschaft. Yeah, but at, at the same time, a part of Hitler's broad appeal came from the fact that he was able to stand in for what different Germans wanted and needed, that, that everybody could kind of see in, in Hitler uh, their Fuhrer. You know, he, that he, he'd come from the people, that he had, had humble origins – that he was a veteran, fought in the war, uh, that he was everything that, that Weimar wasn't, that he's masculine and strong in contrast to, to this uh, weak and compromising previous republic. Mm -hmm. he, he, is, he is something different to everybody, but, but certainly appealing most to the middle class. And I don't, I don't think it's not... The Hitler myth, like you say, has these elements to it that everybody can buy into. But I think the difference is that there's nothing in the middle class political narrative that inoculates it against the Hitler myth like there is in the upper class or in other social milieus that are more closely associated with the working class, right? In Among the elites, you have just the status consciousness of the fact that, as Hindenburg called Hitler, the little corporal is of the people and so therefore you know like who is this up jumped nobody right like uh there the elitism and the status consciousness of the of, of the upper classes in many ways serves as an impediment to the penetration of nazi values because they don't they don't yeah. buy into the hitler myth in the same way parts of the hitler myths explicitly turn them off <laughs> And then in the communists and the socialists and the Catholic milieus, right? Like you've, in the working class, uh, in this case, when you're in the cities, you're more likely to be encountering a, a communist or a socialist 
kind of voting patterns. And when you move into the countryside, then there tends to be a more pronounced, uh, particularly in, in the Western, in Bavaria and in the Rhineland, uh, the Catholic, the Catholic sort of farming working class, they have all of these counterpoints to the Hitler myth that is a part of their political discussion that would be appearing in newspapers that they're reading all through the 1920s and up until they start being banned in the early 1930s, 33, 34, that are poking holes in the Hitler myth or providing a counterpoint through, uh, you know, the, the priest's Sunday sermon, right? Uh, that other people who aren't a part of that particular milieu are not going to have being presented to them. They're going to be trapped in their their little echo chamber of the Hitler myth and the propaganda message that comes along with that. So the working class does does buy the, the Hitler myth eventually. What what do you think it is that breaks that ice that that, that brings them in? Is is it real economic recovery? Uh, something that that is starting to, to benefit them? Is it the message of gains without peace or without war? Or do you think that the middle class never gets on board with the, with the Hitler myth? Working class. The, mm. Yeah. Or do yeah, you think okay. that the, the working class never gets on board with the, with the Hitler myth? No, I, I think that they do get on board. I, I just think that it they're slower to adapt because they, the, because they have this counterpoint that sort of inoculates them to a degree, yeah. so to so to say. But I I think that you've hit on the two big things there, right? Like there there is, as we talked about in Volksgemeinschaft and consumer communities and strength through joy programs, the attempt to show the middle or to show the working class that look, you are going to be a part of Germany's bright future, the Volksempfänger the people's radio is specifically produced mass produced in a way that it is supposed to be affordable with, I believe a week's wages. So it's a way for the regime to spread its message, but also to provide a manifest also to provide manifest proof of this idea of the, the consumer aspects of, uh, of Volksgemeinschaft or of people's community. But then at the same time, you know, the economic recovery as experienced by an individual German is real, regardless of what the macroeconomics are, right? And regardless of whether their job gets axed from week to week because there's nobody to pay the money for the roadworks this month, right? There and and there there is a degree of frustration that goes along with that. And popularity really fluctuates with the mismanagement of uh of particularly food shortages in the mid 1930s and in in with attempts at like supply side reform but details details aside there's still this element that hitler can step back and say well the party is screwing up delivery on my promises right but we're working toward that delivery and you can see that it's still not the 1920s here, right? There are, there are, the roads are getting built. There are, con <laughs> uh, there are concrete, <laughs> concrete examples of the advances of Nazism. No pun intended. Uh, that that 
that are very obvious and can be pointed to. So, and then, like you say, at the same time, there's this idea that at first Hitler is able to deliver all of these rearmament and reoccupation of the Rhineland and reunification of the Saar without violence. There does appear to be that sensitivity to, you know, the working class is the class that's going to suffer in case of a war, and I don't want a war. So, I don't know. It hesitant at first, and then full full throated support, as it were. Mm-hmm. Okay, but but I, I I like the the way you're you're presenting it as uh, that they they had been inoculated again. They had alternatives to look to in in the ideas of of socialism, communism, in, insofar as they could still be expressed in Germany and a different set of values. Well, in the same way that the upper classes are kind of brought on board by labor discipline and anti-communism and a return to law and order, once it is very clear that there are, it is going to be a return to law and order until, you know, all of a sudden all their companies are being nationalized. But that... The willingness to work again, like there is an inoculation because upper class elitism pr- provides a barrier to that, but it's one, it, it is a process of winning over, I suppose. And the Hitler myth is powerful in that, but so are the actual, so are the feats, uh, the, the sort of like heroic feats of Hitler as leader that are attributed to him that allow him to fulfill the image of the charismatic leader who is a genius and capable of anything right yeah through through demonstrating those successes or those qualities i guess Mm -hmm. well if we're to lay out the hitler myth in in sort of like the rise and fall of the hitler myth what what are our main points here all right well um i mean it begins before hitler comes to power begins before before Hitler is a well-known figure it begins with Hitler as as the the leader of the party in in the the early years in the comp site uh, between you know, 1925 and 1928 yeah it's it's really important that he he emerges as a figure at that point inside the party as as a point of consensus i mean there are major divides in the party between the North and Bavarian party. And uh, it, it still has very much a regional character to different parts of the Nazi movement. And Hitler is kind of picked as the figure who can serve as the, the integrating point or the, the integral point, the, the point of consensus for all these different parts of the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you, do you think that the, the, moderating force component is present right here at the beginning? I don't know enough to say. I, I think that's an interesting question. I really wish I knew more about the early history of the Nazi party. I, I know basically nothing about the like the schism with the Strasslers and mm-hmm. uh, that, that whole kind of early integration process. Well, you must plead I'm, ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm kind of in, in the same boat as you are uh, there. But I, I get get the impression that that's a quality that was almost necessary to bring the party together to offer a, a central position for everyone to congeal around. I, I do think, I guess, from 
some of the things that I've read that he Hitler's tendency to affirm decisions taken by subordinates, I think, is important in, in that respect because there, there's the famous letter that comes to him where I forget if it's, I think it's at the district level. Some guy writes him and he says, like, oh, well, I'm very well respected by everybody here and everybody likes me. And the guy who's the current, we'll say, district party leader right now is a real bonehead and he's inefficient. And, you know, I would really like if you would appoint me the new district party leader because I think I'm better. And Hitler writes back and says, well, if you say that you have support, then why don't you just seize it? And so I, I think it's his refusal to involve himself for fear of becoming entangled, for fear of backing the wrong horse, mm -hmm. but his willingness to confirm any success. Like it, it kind of gives him, it leaves him in a unique position where by present, if you present Hitler with a success, he can lay his hands upon it and, and sort of confirm it and, and make it so, right? But uh -huh. he never puts himself in the position of backing the wrong horse because he's saying like, well, why are you telling me if you're, you're supposed to be a leader like I am, right? Like lead. Um, so I, I can see that as definitely allowing him to weather that storm in the early part of the, in the early history of the party. I, I, I like that. Okay, so uh, once he's established himself as the leader of the party, and they begin to to gain some popular support with the beginning of, of the depression and the increase in, in unemployment, Hitler becomes a real public figure um, through the the 1930 elections and the 1930 elections. That's really their breakthrough point. He goes from being a, a consensus figure in the party to a public figure overnight they all of a sudden in, in this election they've been like running maybe two percent of the vote and all of a sudden they have 6.4 million votes is 18.3 percent of all cast votes and 107 seats in the reichstag they have a yeah, place this, at the this table. is 1930 1930 they have a place yeah. at the table yeah so all of a sudden this hitler guy becomes somebody that has taken a huge bite out of what the other right-wing parties that have been part of the power structure up to that point, uh, he takes a huge bite out of their support base. So he's all of a sudden somebody that they have to reckon with and that they have to deal with. Yeah, and uh, of course his his support in the 1932 election uh, would be even higher still. Do, do you have the number on that? It's something like 34%? I do not. It is significant. It's the largest single party vote. Yeah. Out. Um, he takes the plurality this, and in large this, portions of the This is what Google more. is for. Yeah, um, that's true. What What does Wikipedia, arbiter of truth, have to say about the 1932 German elections? According to Wikipedia, the Nazis had 33.09% of the votes. Right which I know in certain districts exceeded 50% in significant portions of the country and was extremely low in the Rhineland, like seven or nine points behind the national average. In any case, at, at this point, he is, he is a national figure. This is a time when, when he is presenting himself as, as this representative of, of the German nation uh, of going 
against all the faults of the Weimar Republic, but doing it in a law and order kind of way. He's after the the failure of the the putsch, the beer hall putsch. Uh, he's declared that that he's going to operate within the system, developing this this part of of his image uh, as a a person of law and order that is all the same uh, committed to uh, fighting against the Weimar Republic and the Treaty of Versailles, and and all that, and and ultimately. This is is what helps contribute to his successes and the the party's successes in the elections. Uh, so much so that by 1933, the conservative uh, forces, the B, can can see him as somebody who, who maybe they could appoint to uh, the position of chancellor. That maybe he would be controllable there, and yeah. and, and help to stabilize the situation. Well, like you said before, is somebody who could somebody who could serve as a vehicle to reestablish the the legitimacy of the conservative traditional nationalist conservative parties, because the Nazis with their with their platform have taken all of their support. So if we take Hitler into the fold in the cabinet as, as the chancellor, but we surround him with all of these national conservatives, then as the tragically famous quote goes, we'll have him so far backed into the corner that he'll squeak when, of course, Hitler's popularity and his the Hitler myth as such is what allows him to completely disregard the people who have brought him into government and just act on his own. He has this massive base of popular support that he can always turn to in, in a sort of plebiscary capacity to legitimize anything that he wants to do. Yeah. And, and you know, he uses plebiscites to legitimize decision after decision. Uh, the, the, this is a, a, a go-to tactic for him. When he's made a big move or taken credit for a big move, you put it to a vote. And uh, the, the people themselves uh, in the polls show their support. None of this false Weimar democracy, a true call upon the people, right? So, Yeah. Although, have you ever seen uh, the, the ballot for the the plebiscite for the Anschluss. It is amazing. There it is. is a tiny little circle with no yeah. in it, and then the giant one that says yes. Right. So, you know, it's a ballot, but it's very clear what the right answer is to the question. Yes, and and they're not subtle about it. But at the same time, in in certain plebiscites like the Star plebiscite, and even some of even some of the the later plebiscites that are uh, used to confirm, uh, Hitler says, I'll, I'll hold a plebiscite every year. And based on the, uh, so long as my popularity is confirmed, I will remain chancellor. And when it's not confirmed anymore, I will, I will step down. And I think he tops out at something like 90 point something percent in one of these votes. And there is, you know, there's clearly the right way to vote. And, but the level of coercion is actually not very high, according to the Gestapo reports. And he actually, he stops holding the plebiscites after he cracks this point. He says, that I, I'm never going to get a better result than this. And I don't want to see my results in the plebiscite going down because that's going to under, undermine my public image. That's going to undermine my legitimacy. So he just stops holding the plebiscites at that point. Yeah. And, and, you know, the legal basis for him to be dictator is already in place by that point. It's, I think, three years into the dictatorship, four years in maybe. And so, no, only three. I think it was 1936 was the last one. Anyway, points to look up sometime. 
but uh yeah and so he he manages to he just hits this high point and says well popular acclaim has decreed i will remain i will remain chancellor right so uh and and at this point he's also managing to deliver all of these foreign policy successes as sort of hitler the statesman that are are constantly proving his supposed genius right yeah uh, so by 1935, 1936, the, the economic recoveries has started to slow. So this damages the, Hitler's image a little bit. Uh, but then he starts starts delivering these success after success after success in this for, foreign sphere. You know, rearmament, uh, remilitarization of the Rhineland, reincorporation of the, the Saarland. Uh, then uh, he manages to unite Germany with Austria. Uh, yeah, skip ahead, Germany. skip ahead to 1938 here now. Yeah, right. Uh, so uh, 1936 is, is a big year, but but 1938 is when real territorial additions start to happen. Uh, the union with, with Austria, uh, the acquisition of the Sudetenland, and then the rest of Czechoslovakia. And then all of these are, are achieved without bloodshed this is triumph without bloodshed hitler as the master diplomat yes the munich agreement and neville chamberlain's ill-fated words peace in our time mm -hmm. uh, serve as this sort of affirmation that hitler is that is a genius who can get all of czechoslovakia for not only can he return this smaller group this is, the reason the sudetenland is a hot topic is because there is a, an ethnic minority of germans that live there the sudeten deutsch and so hitler makes claims on it as a lost territory that should be part of germany and then just goes ahead and takes the rest of the country while he's at it so uh it's there's yeah concrete gains being made that are occurring entirely through diplomacy at this point yeah and and every one of these things reinforces his image because charismatic authority is predicated on delivering the goods over and over and over again. And that's what he's doing, fortifying this image. And really at this point, and once, once he's established as head of the party all the way back in the 1920s, it becomes a self-reinforcing system. So long as everybody agrees that you as leader are responsible for everything that happens, then so long as good things keep happening, your position gets stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger. Yeah. So we move on to 1939. We get the Second World War, which is, of course, the challenge to the myth because the genius was supposed to have been predicated on the fact that Germans were going to reap all of these benefits without ever having to shed any blood for them. Yeah, and, and the beginning of the war was not greeted by cheering crowds in the streets. People still remembered the First World War at that point. Very clear. Yeah, yeah. Uh, apparently, right right after the the uh, the war began, there was a very sullen mood uh, in the country. That um, oh, there's a story of it's either Dodd or Shearer uh, that says they he'd look out on the streets of of Berlin after the beginning of the war, and you know, there's okay, a military unit marching through, and and people are are moving away from it. That, that they're not coming out to, to, to greet the German forces on their way to the front, that they're, they're very concerned about this new war. Hmm. But its successes in the war, it's the rapid conquest of Poland and France 
that add this component to the Hitler myth. He's the master military genius. So you rapid, know. in fact, that it's easy to overlook Norway and Denmark happen in the middle there. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like, it, it, <laughs> one after the other, countries begin being falling to the to the German war machine, right? Yeah. And this this idea per- continues to uh, persist until things go bad in the Soviet Union. But even still, as, as we've discussed, uh, kind of the the blame for some of this failure can be displaced away from Hitler and onto uh, the military or military leadership. And Hitler remained as this symbol of the will to achieve victory in the face of these setbacks. Uh, to to Right on, and even after the the failure of the July twentieth plot, uh, this idea that that he was destined to bring Germany to victory, uh, come hell or high water, uh, not just remained, but it was reinforced uh, by that event. And then by that point, we have of course reached the end of the war. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and uh, and you know, Kershaw in, in the end says that you know by by the end of the war. This this upsurge in support after the July twentieth, nineteen forty four bomb plot uh, had had long since vanished. That 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 did not remain long in Germany, um, and most of the people had had started to come to see through the myth. Wow. Something about evacuating your home with all the worldly possessions you can carry on your back, you know? Yeah, yeah, because the the charismatic leader was failing and the charismatic leader can't can't fail and maintain authority right and again that's when we see a huge rise uh, as as the other project in this channel has been looking at it we see a huge rise in the amount of coercion that's deployed in the end phase. yeah but, um yeah let's let's just quickly and i actually don't know how to answer this question myself but let, let's let's talk about did did hitler believe this myth about himself was well, he just manufacturing it? Was he also swayed by it? I mean, Kershaw suggests that Hitler is at first conscious of the fact that this is a propaganda construction, but particularly over the course of the early 1930s, as the successes begin to rack up, almost assuredly after the fall of France and the first heady year of the invasion of the Soviet Union, he had been lost. He'd been isolated in this little world where he was surrounded by people who were telling him that he was infallible and that everything that that he had the Midas touch, that everything that he did turned to gold, and he was the reason for all of Germany's successes. He began to believe that through sheer force of will, he could overcome anything. And I, I don't know. I, I think it's it's clear that he's he is still talking about in the early days that he sees himself as the drummer boy who is rallying together Germans to hand over to a dictator who will someday arise and lead the German people and that he wants to prepare the way for that person. But I, I really... You would really have to... I mean look at what happens to people just when they become musicians, right? Like, uh, and, and the, the cult of celebrity that occurs yeah. when you're picked up in Hollywood, that's hard to resist when you're part of a, a publicity machine that, that tells you that you're magical. Right. 
And if you if you combine the publicity machine of just becoming rich with shaping the world according to your will, what kind of effect is it? Like you'd have to be superhuman not to think that you were superhuman. Mm-hmm. So he's like a rock star that forgot that he was on auto-tune. <laughs> um, I may have set up that comparison, yes. <laughs> But yeah. Okay. What but, do you think? But Hitler, think? but Hitler did. It it seems buy into this this sense of destiny that that uh, that he believed that that he was was part of something something faded that was happening. Right. He for sure believed that by the. I uh, supposed to have made a comment about uh, Providence has not abandoned me yet, or something like that. After the. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bomb plot on July. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. By by then, I mean he doesn't have a lot of other options. Uh, besides the one he eventually takes of, of suicide, that that, <laughs> that that he needs to believe that he is a man of destiny and that a miracle is going to happen. Yeah, divine um, forces it, are going have to save me yeah. because I don't know how to at this point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know, um. I I think that that maybe that that gets it at something about charismatic authority that that because it's a relationship that the the object of the the charismatic authority the charismatic leader themselves maybe are just as, as susceptible to it as as anybody else. Well, I if you tell a story the, long enough, everyone's going to believe it. Mm-hmm. And and I also think that part of the power of the charismatic leader is that they they have to believe in the nature of their mission. If they don't yeah. believe in the nature of their mission, yeah. they can't project the authority of that mission that that you know charms or like compels through charm others to obey. Yeah, well, the courage I, of one's I, convictions as it were. Sure. Uh, I suppose that I mean you could go through the motions cynically, but you know well, but it's worth pointing out in that respect that Hitler doesn't make public appearances after Stalingrad, more or less. Yes, but I, I mean, do you think that that's that's a a conscious effort to avoid like, breaking his spell? Absolutely. I but I, 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 I think it happens at two levels. Like he's conscious of the fact that he can't, he can't allow himself to be seen in a way in any way that diminishes himself right the same way that he won't he won't be seen playing sports or doing anything that he doesn't excel at yeah like he has to be the best right because that's part of his public presentation he won't be he doesn't allow himself to be photographed wearing glasses things like this but at the same time yeah it's cynical but i i also think that there's an element of you know there's an element of belief in there I don't want to go too far down this route because otherwise yeah. I'm going to end up, uh, I'm going to be, you know, just speculating, but I'm also going to end up echoing <laughs> the findings of the movie Der Fuhrer, which was a comedy, but uh, about how Hitler brings in a Jewish acting coach to let him get his mojo back. But have you seen this? No, I, I'm going to have to take a look at that one. Oh man, it's it stars Helga Schneider, who is a a uniquely Germanic form of comedy let's say that sort of lives in the awkward and and like obtuse but uh anyway he pr- he plays hitler and uh it's it's quite an interesting movie huh. 
parts of it are quite funny and then it kind of takes a weird turn into the moralistic at the end and but it's worth watching like okay <laughs> it's got right. some amazing scenes anyway uh, it's a, but it's a but, fantastic premise um, yeah and but th- that idea though that like there is an element of hitler doesn't want to appear in public when he can't when he can't he has no great victory to deliver right he has nothing to renew the charismatic support it mm-hmm. has to he can't like to appear in that situation would be to undermine his legitimacy not to reinforce it okay and whether he understands that at a conscious level or an innate level uh, as sort of the you know political animal that he was is um i don't know beyond my knowledge all right and i and i think that you know that ultimately is it is an unanswerable question whether he believed it or not but we can we can speculate there are clues to go kershaw definitely thinks that he did right yeah he learned to believe Uh like and and i don't i i again i i think that you know there's no there's all these kind of statements about provenance and the divine like fulfilling a divine will or a divine purpose that start to creep into his language that you can see in the table talks and things like that that just give you the impression of someone who who believes that they have a a, a destiny right and so i don't i don't see how you could not i don't see i don't see how he could not think he had a destiny at that point you can't do those types of things without believing without the courage of your convictions yeah yeah no i i think you're right you're right uh how could you not how could you not be taken in by by the myth itself the the adulation and and the successes that that things do just keep working for them right you have proof you have proof of things that should not be possible happening because you willed them so yeah right and then you start trying to do crazy to will crazy things to happen like we're going to take stalingrad because it's stalin's like unless you're unless you're in a position where you believe through sheer force of will you can make something happen there's no way that you would like the move for Stalingrad is a a, a play, a, a sort of like metaphysical attack on the Soviet Union. We're going to take Stalin's cities, na 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 na, right? Like, but but the idea that you would just throw an entire army into urban combat, which is awful, when you had no need to, and you could just go around the city and then cut off the everybody who was inside of it and get it that way. But no, we need to have a direct confrontation. I, that that shows that's the decision making of somebody that's not that has fallen to this myth, right? That they believe it. They believe that will can make anything happen. Yeah. So the undoing of the myth started with Hitler believing it himself. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the the titles of Kershaw's biography of Hitler are appropriately yeah. entitled, right? They are hubris and nemesis, and the Hitler myth is is the hubris and nemesis of of the rise and fall of the Nazi regime. In in, in a way, you can definitely trace the narrative that way. 